Well, today we return to year C in the Book of Common Prayer's Sunday Eucharistic Lectionary. Um, and I want to take a quick word just at the beginning of the sermon today to talk about lectionary preaching as opposed to what we've been doing, which is series preaching. Uh, if you've been with us for some Sundays, you know that we've been going through a series called Patriarchs and Promises, which we began last year, last summer, and continued this past summer. And the main difference, of course, between lectionary and series preaching is that series preaching goes sequentially through a book, right? And so we look at the spotlighted text for the day in light of the context of the book, in light of the book's context in the larger canon of Scripture, right? All of Scripture. Lectionary preaching is a little different. Lectionary preaching also highlights three, sometimes four if you count the psalm, different sections of Scripture, and it has woven them together with a theme, right? It's woven them together with a theme, and the idea is that it's speaking to the consistency of God's Word from age to age, right? And His Word to the church is enduring, so they're both good, they both highlight different things, um, but we're returning here to lectionary preaching. Now, you're, you're probably a little rusty, you know, it's been since June that we've had it, but what do you suppose the theme is of today's text? And it's in all four of them. What do you suppose the theme is in today's texts? Deuteronomy... Philemon, Psalm 1, and Luke 14, right? What do you think? Do you see anything? Obedience to God's commands. Yes. Let's go even more basic than that. That's right. That's a sub-theme, sub but that's right. What's even more basic than that? Choice. Choice. That man has a choice. That man has a choice. All human beings have the choice of life or death. It's a choice that we make in the initial taking on of the path of salvation with baptism and then confirmation, or in some other context, right? Perhaps you said the sinner's prayer at some point in your life and made a choice. Perhaps your parents said baptismal vows for you, and then you grew up and made it that choice. But that choice is fundamental to who we are as God's people. Now, it's not exclusive. It's not done outside of God's grace. Our colleague today is very clear about that. God's grace is what gives us the ability to choose. But we have a choice to make. And then secondly, Christians every day choose whether to persist in that way, to continue in that choice, or to not. Right? It's not like one and done. We have to adhere to God's commandments adhere to his will by his grace. So all human beings have a choice. That's the, the banner verse, the summation verse 
of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, is verse 19, rather. I, I ask you to look at it with me. The Lord God, through Moses, says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring might live. The choice is set before us. And in this passage in the Old Testament, the great lawgiver Moses has just renewed a covenant at Moab with God, between God and his people. And the people of God are about to cross over the Jordan River into the Promised Land, that land that we've been talking about in our sermon series that started with Genesis chapter 12, right? This land promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to the nation of Israel. Moses cannot, however, enter into the Promised Land with the people of Israel, as he explains directly after this reading in Deuteronomy 31. These are part of Moses' last words to God's people, the people he's led for years, before he hands them over to Joshua to lead them. And there's a great deal going on in this context of Deuteronomy chapter 30 that we're not going to get into. But suffice it to say, God has offered a covenant to his people just prior, and it's by grace alone that they're entering into the promised land, because they've already messed up many times since he gave them the law. In the Old and New Covenant, there is what's called typology. Typology. Perhaps you've heard of it before. And that is that there are things or events that are very real in the Old Testament that foreshadow things in the New Testament or the New Covenant. And the action of Israel crossing into the Promised Land through the Jordan River is one of those such events. What do you suppose it represents? What do you suppose it represents typologically? People coming from wandering in the wilderness through water into the promised land. Why, hopefully you see, it's a foreshadowing of holy baptism. It's a foreshadowing of holy baptism. And so, subsequently in Joshua 3, they will go through the Jordan River. And how will they go through? The ark will lead them through. Again, they walk through it by God's presence and by His grace. And just as the Red Sea waters parted back in Exodus, so here in Joshua 3, um, that happens again. The waters are heaped up and they walk through by God's grace. So this theme of choosing life or death, good or evil, blessing or curse is a choice for all human beings. And it's the choice to accept God's grace, beginning the Christian walk, and it's also a choice to accept God's grace in continuing the Christian walk. The earliest teachings of the church, not included in the Bible, in the canonical readings of Scripture, is a little work called the Didache, which is Greek for teaching. It was probably written between 50 and 100 A.D. Different scholars will give you different numbers in there, but everybody agrees that it's really early, 
And it's written for Christians before they had a physical Bible. Because remember, there are letters circulating that now are the New Testament, but there's no Bible yet at that point, per se, except for the Old Testament. In the Didache, we begin with this. Chapter 1, verse 1. There are two ways, says the teacher, one of life and one of death. And there is a great difference between the two ways. The first way is this. First of all, thou shalt love the God that made thee. Secondly, thy neighbor as thyself. Sound familiar? There's a reason that we begin the liturgy either with that summary of the law that Jesus gave us or with the Decalogue as we did this morning. To hear what it is that God commands us to do. And the way of life is to choose to love and obey God. It's that simple. But Moses doesn't want his people to forget it because we are forgetful as human beings and we are rebellious as human beings. After this, Moses has the priests and the Levites in the end of chapter 30 read the law to the assembly gathered there. Again, this is why that's how we start our service. So the question is, why then do we as human beings choose the way of death so often? Why do we choose the way of evil and curse so often? It appears like it should be easier. The way of good, the way of evil. The way that's going to be in alignment with God and make you happy, the way that's not in alignment with God's will is going to make you miserable. Why the heck do people choose wrongly so often? Well, St. Augustine, St. Anselm, St. Thomas Aquinas, and Martin Luther all agree on this point, that we don't choose evil itself outright, but rather we choose not God. We choose not God. We choose not God's will. We choose not God's law. We choose not obedience. We choose not to love. And all while we're doing these things and making these choices, we think that we're choosing instead our happiness and our goodness. What's the problem here is that our desires, our perceptions even, are flawed. And some would go so far as to say the will itself is flawed. The choice seems like it should be obvious. As I said earlier, if given the choice between good and evil, blessing or curse, what are you going to choose? What are you going to choose? Well, it should be like that woman in the 1930s horror movies that is going into the dark woods with the werewolves. And you're watching, saying, don't do it, don't do it. Why are you so stupid? Right? And yet she does it anyway. Yeah, that, that's the position of all mankind. That's where we all are. Right? And that choice, which should be obvious to us, is not. And so that's partly God's, the advantage of having God's law. Having God's law shows us God's will, right? If you want to know what God believes, look at his word, look at the Decalogue, 
look at the summary of the law, look at any of that and you will see the beginnings at least to the way of life versus the way of death. Of course, even that wasn't enough, right? If the law was enough, there'd be no need for Jesus. But God sends Jesus himself to reveal God himself to us. God in the flesh. God to take the law, fulfill it, explain it, and help us. And help us. Because we can't fulfill it. So, going back to that choice, the second point of the sermon, why is it so hard to choose God? Why is it so hard to choose blessing? Why is it so hard to choose obedience? Well, Jesus tells us, if we're listening, that choosing God is costly. It's costly. Choosing God is difficult. Choosing and obeying and choosing good over evil cuts against the grain in our fallen nature. We should see very clearly, but we don't. And then when we even do see clearly, we still choose otherwise. So the answer for each individual person as to why he or she chooses not God is, of course, very complicated. But the answer for mankind generally is not. Men and women want to be God. It's that simple. Men and women want to be God. Well, what do I mean? Well, we want to be at the center of things. We want to be at the center of the universe. We want to be the arbitrator of what's good and what's evil. Notice Satan's temptation to Eve in Genesis 3 and the subsequent temptations of Jesus in the wilderness by Satan himself is the temptation, quote, you will be like God. You will be like God. You will be like God knowing good and evil in Genesis 3. This is the temptation of all mankind in every age to play God rather than to submit to Him. To play God rather than to submit to Him. And that's why we choose evil and death because we're lured to play God. Our enemy, the devil, that was his lure to begin with. That's what he does. While not from the Bible, John Milton summarizes it well in his poem, Paradise Lost, where Satan, after being cast out of heaven, says, to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And more untrue words could never be said. The Lord Jesus says entirely the opposite. Verse 26b, I draw your attention to it in today's gospel, the second half of verse 26. What does Jesus say? If anyone comes after me and does not hate, and let's jump to the last half, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple unless he hates his own life. Not, well, my own life is okay, or I just have my priorities slightly out of whack. But unless you hate 
your own life. And if you dig into the word behind this, it's meseo, meaning to hate, or detest, or despise. And Jesus goes on earlier, rather, in the verse to say, unless anyone, unless anyone comes to me does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now think about that. That's harsh, isn't it? Why is Jesus saying that? Does Jesus want you to hate your family? Does Jesus want you to, you know, just deprecate yourself until you, you know, hit yourself until you're falling down and can't do anything? What's Jesus actually saying here? He's saying that unless your love of your family is so small compared to your love of God that it looks like hate, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. Eh. Think about that for a minute. Think about the things that you love, the people that you love, right? Your spouse, your parents, your children, your siblings. Your love for them must look so small that it seems to be hate compared to your love for God in order to be Jesus' disciple. That's a tall order. And it's meant to be so. Jesus here is using hyperbole to draw us in and to show us just how much we have to love God in order to obey Him. It's the same type of thing that Jesus does in Matthew 5, that hyperbole where He says that if a lustful man that a lustful man should rather pluck out his offending eye rather than enter into hell whole, right? It's the same idea. Or in Romans 9, where it says that God loved Jacob and hated Esau, right? It's the same use of that word. Jesus is trying to get our attention with this contrast and comparison that our love for God must be exceptional and that we must choose life in love, and that that is that costly. That's why he follows it up with verse 27. Look at it with me. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then verse 33, where our passage ends. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The short book of Philemon is all about what it looks like where the rubber meets the road to practically follow Christ and to have this love of God. In it, St. Paul speaks of how the love of God should compel Philemon to see his brother Onesimus as a brother in the Lord rather than a bondservant or a slave. Look at the epistle. It's only one chapter, but verse 6. What does St. Paul say? He says, I pray that the sharing of your faith 
may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because of the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. And Paul goes on to say that he, as the apostle, has the authority spiritually to demand, to demand that Philemon treat Onesimus as a brother and not a slave, but that he would rather his love motivate it. He would rather his, mo- his love motivate it. That's the final point, that there is a reward to following the way of life in obedience and blessing, and that it indeed is worth it. True life is worth it, not just biological life, but life with meaning, life with blessedness, life with the creator of all the world, life that is everlasting and eternal is worth the cost of obedience and painful work constantly to remove our lusts, our desires, our corrupt passions, and all of those things in our nature that are fallen. It's worth it. In Philemon, St. Paul is in chains, for goodness sakes, for the gospel, and yet can claim joy, comfort, and refreshment. How is that so? Is St. Paul nuts? Many have asked. People have asked that of the saints even, and the martyrs even, over the centuries. Is he or she nuts? How can he or she be so joyful and refreshed in the face of such evils? Why would someone choose celibacy rather than to act on a sinful passion? Why would someone choose poverty when they could live more comfortably in this world? Why would someone choose to serve others when they could sit on their couch and watch Netflix instead? Why would someone, as Father Joshua has told me time and time again, go to Nigeria, as the missionaries did, with all of their belongings, their earthly belongings, packed not in a trunk, but in a casket, knowing that that's probably how they would be coming home to England? Why? Are they nuts? No. They love God that much. They want to obey Him that much. They want their lives to glorify Him that much. And they're an inspiration to us all. They're not crazy. They're choosing the way of life, the way of blessing, the way of God. They're following particularly what God has called them to do. Right? in each of their particular situations. Generally, he calls us to love him. Particularly, he calls us to different tasks. But he calls all of us to love and obedience. So as God spoke to the ancient Israelites, so he speaks to all human beings. And so he speaks also to the baptized. What do you choose? What do you choose? See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Choose life that you and your offspring may live. I think the latter part of that verse is the most beautiful part because it shows God's heart that he longs that we choose life for ourselves and for our children, that he doesn't want us to perish, that he doesn't want us to 
live a life that's miserable and full of death and curse, but that He wants us to be in His presence forever in this life and the next. But so is this a warning to the Christian. Don't be a fool. Count the cost. Look at the rest of the Gospel. I won't read it all to you, but Jesus uses the image of a tower or an army and a person that's not able to complete the task given to him because he has not counted the cost. True life and true blessing, dear friends, will cost you. True blessing will cost you everything that you are. But when we come to the end of our lives, when we sit before the great throne of the Lord, before the great judgment seat, loving God will cost you not being like God, but trying to be God. And as the testimony of the communion of saints attests to us, O fellow Christian, it is worth it. At the end of the day, as we do sit before that throne, as a matter of a fact, our cost, the cost of our love and the cost of obedience is very small. Particularly, the cost of our cross, which Jesus asks us to carry, is very small compared with his cross, compared with his obedience, compared with his love, which he gives to us. There is no comparison. Dear Christian, count the, count the cost, not just of your obedience, but of his love. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.